So I got down to church this morning for the to my office for the for the service, and I couldn't get the internet to agree. So I came back out to the house uh, to uh, for more steady Wi-Fi connection. But I, it reminded me of a time. Uh, this is a few years ago. But I was <clears throat> I parked my car at Starbucks and was walking about to walk into a Starbucks when this guy walks out of Starbucks just really angry. And he looks at me and he goes, don't even bother going in. The internet's down. And I thought, <laughs> and I just kind of, it caught me off guard. And all I knew to say, was, I just kind of looked at him and went, coffee? You know, like they do still have coffee, right? And it's kind of like um, sometimes we forget what a place is for. Um, and uh, as far as I knew at that time, you know, Internet was good, but Starbucks was pretty much for coffee, not for internet. Um, so we've been doing this series, um, Essential Church. And uh, I want us to think about what really is essential. If the internet is out, that's okay. Um, if, um, if we are going through a really challenging time, what is it? I mean, we can kind of pinpoint it with Starbucks. Starbucks is about coffee. Now they would say it's probably also about connections and, and things like that, but essentially it's coffee. Uh, so what is this essential about church? And we've been looking at different passages of scripture over the last few weeks um, as we've, we've talked about, you know, what, what it is, what's our role. And it, it could be something, and this was uh, two, three weeks ago, um, that the church is essential in declaring to the world the glory and wisdom of God. Um, the church is the church's role is not to convince the world by argument, but uh, we're to woo the world by stories of our own lives lived in faith and love. And so, I want us to think about for today. I want us to ask some big questions, and we're going to wade into waters that I'll admit are way over my head. Um, but walk with me through this. Um, in the in the current state of our country, and specifically as a virus rages and the economy teeters on unknowns, and we lack consensus on how to navigate our way through this instability, what is the church's role? And is is church essential in times like this? And by church, I'm talking big C church. I mean more than our Sunday gatherings. I'm referring to Christ's body. The church is how the body, uh, how the Bible refers to it, and the church is made up of His apprentices, Christians like many of us on the Zoom call this morning. So this is the kind of the, the the mindset that I want us to come with this morning for a few minutes. Let's put ourselves in the times of the Bible, whether it's the Old Testament writings of the prophets or the New Testament accounts of the life of Christ and the beginning of the church. And stepping back into that, I want us to think, what would have been our prevailing mindset had we been raised in that culture? We're going to look at that. And we're also going to consider what role did God play in biblical accounts of epidemics? there were several of them, and we'll look at just a handful. Uh, does God have anything to do with, specifically, the coronavirus? And if so, how do we interpret what God is saying to us in this current epidemic? Could it be that yet another essential role of the church is to interpret the God-linked reality to the coronavirus? 
In Proverbs 25, verse 2, it says that it is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings to search them out. So what has God concealed that is searchable and perhaps knowable? What has God concealed that is beyond our ability to know? Um, what is it that we can search out, whether it's in the form of a, vi a vaccine or an understanding? Well, my, my search for understanding led me to, among other things, the, a book recently written uh, this year uh, by Walter Brueggemann. And his, uh, the title of the book is Virus as a Summons to Faith. I'm going to copy the author's name and the name of that book, and I'll paste it in the in the chat. Um, and a lot of what I'm going to share with you this morning comes from that book, uh, or are thoughts inspired by his words and the many scripture references he draws from. Uh, if you would like a more in-depth uh, look at his perspective and how he opens up scriptures for us to, to look at that, I encourage you. It's a, it's a smaller book, a pretty quick read. Um, but drawing from plagues that are recorded in the Bible, uh, I want us this uh, in our in our time together. What are three interpretive options to a God-linked reality to the coronavirus? Three interpretive options to a God-linked reality to the coronavirus. Um, the first one, and again, I'll just for simplicity, if you're able to look at these in the chat feature. The first one uh, is just simply called a transactional uh, interpretation. And this is simple cause and effect. It's, it is uh, those times in the Bible where God blessed obedience and God punished disobedience. Uh, this transactional interpretation would quickly conclude uh, looking at what we're going through right now that our country has been afflicted with the virus itself and all the subsequent fallout of the virus because we as a country have failed and are sinful. So this is option number one. Uh, and John 9 is an interesting story. Jesus is walking with his disciples, and John chapter 9 begins with this. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And verse 2 says, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So they were, they were raised in this transactional mindset. The common belief of the day was that obedience led to blessing, disobedience led to a curse. So the disciples assumed that either the blind man or his parents must have done something terribly wrong to deserve such a fate. Simple cause and effect. You violate a code, you will be punished. This was deeply rooted. Uh, we, read it, uh, we, we read about it in Leviticus, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 26. And I know a lot of you start your day reading in Leviticus, thrilling reading. Um, but it says this in verse 23, if in spite of these things, you do not accept my correction, but continue to be hostile towards me, the Lord says, I myself will be hostile toward you and will afflict you for your sins seven times over. So it's this picture of if, if you're not going to, um, to live according to my laws, then you will be afflicted with disease. 
Uh, now, the flip side of that, uh, later on in verse 26, he says, but if you will confess your sins and the sins of, of your ancestors, of their unfaithfulness and hostility, um, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sins, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. So the transaction is blessing in exchange for repentance and obedience. Uh, if you were, were here for Matt's message on the prodigal son story a couple of weeks ago, I wondered if perhaps this transactional interpretation was what governed the mindset of the older brother in the story. If you remember, he was the obedient older brother. He was the one that played by all the rules. And according to that mindset, uh, the older brother seemed to buy into this quid pro quo. And he was most upset when grace was extended to the black sheep of their family. Uh, this, we may not think of, uh, how we would agree with this transactional mindset regarding the coronavirus. But if you are a parent of a young child or you've worked with young kids, um, you'll find yourself entering transactional covenants with your kids. If you eat all your vegetables, then you get dessert. Or if you disobey, there are direct consequences. You'll be put in time out. Some churches teach that true faith always leads to blessing. If you have faith and believe, you will be healed. The transaction is God's obligation to answer our prayer based upon the earnestness of our prayers and the sincerity of our faith. If you have an ailment, though, that God has not healed, according to this transactional interpretation, then you apparently don't have enough faith. So this transactional um, interpretation is almost like a vending machine. You get out what you put in. You put a certain amount in, you get the equivalent out. In a transactional covenant, it believes in a non-negotiable moral code to all that God sets in place. Now, God and his people entered into different covenants at different times, and the most recent being when Jesus held up a glass of wine in the presence of his followers and said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. And we're going to celebrate that covenant at the end of our service. Now, to be clear, the new covenant that we celebrate in communion is not transactional. It is God showing his love and faithfulness in spite of our lack of love and faithfulness. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So that was option number one, is that transactional. The second interpretive uh, option for a God-linked reality to the coronavirus is that it's an act by God in order to implement a specific purpose of God. In this, there is divine intentionality, and God has the capacity to mobilize creation in order to accomplish his will. The biblical example that we're going to consider are the plagues on Egypt that God sent so that Israel will know that Yahweh is God, so that Israel would be set free from the Egyptian slavery and they could worship God freely. In Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7, I'll put this in the chat feature as well. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. 
I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So again, sometimes God uses powerful forces to enact his will. Probably the most powerful force that he uses is love. But there are times when he will use even um, other acts outside of what we would think of as love to bring about his will. His will was that the people would be freed from their slavery to the Egyptians and that they would know that he is the Lord, his God, uh, that the, he is the Lord, their God. Uh, and God even enacted his will so that those who opposed God could encounter God as God. In Exodus 14, it says, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So God has the power to use anything to enact his will. What is God's will? Well, it's a big and broad question, but there are certain things that God makes very clear in Scripture. It's God's will that everyone should know him as Lord and Savior. It's always God's will that we serve the poor, feed the hungry, speak up for the voiceless, seek justice for the abused, we care for children. Um, it is always God's will for equality, whether it's between genders or races or economic status. God wills for unity and equality. Uh, it is never God's will that we be known as consumers and greedy and selfish. So could it be possible that God mobilizes an epidemic in a way that accomplishes his will? Is this an option? Could it be that the coronavirus is something that God will use to awaken us to, as an example, our unhealthy consumeristic ways? Could it be that this is yet another way God is shaking us awake to the inequalities of our systems of living here in America. Well, this would not be the first time God used death to resurrect people to a new way of living. It would not be the first time God used the death of dreams to, um, and uh, longings to resurrect people to a new way of thinking. Third option. The third option is one that I want us to ponder, um, and this is going to take a little bit uh, deeper thinking for this, but the third option is God has the power to act with total freedom and without explanation. God has the freedom, has the power to act with total freedom and without explanation. Now, in the case of the second interpretation that we just looked at, God reveals to us his reasoning for his actions, but God also has the power to act without explanation. He does not owe us an explanation for why things happen. God's ways are beyond our ability to fully understand. Now, can we admit that understanding is often a way that we feel that we are in control? If we can explain it or master something, to control the outcome, um, then we have this sense of security. But some things are beyond our ability to know, to understand. They're beyond our ability to control or manipulate. And I believe the reason this pandemic has disturbed us so deeply is because it's revealing that we, as a nation at least, are not in control, that we are not as powerful as we thought, that we are not as safe as we assume to be, 
maybe we're not as smart as we may have given ourselves credit for. There's a, a character in the Bible whose name is Job. It's spelled like Job. It's pronounced Job. And in this book, God acts in ways that seem to declare to Job that Job is, is not able to comprehend the ways of God. And this is despite the fact that Job is described as a righteous and upright man who feared God and shunned evil. This was a time when the transactional interpretation was the only interpretation of blessings and curses. In other words, Job's friends who gathered around him after Job was afflicted with diseases and all types of terrible things that happened to him, his friends basically assumed that Job was hiding something very evil, but this was not the case. So why did God allow evil, and among other things, a skin disease, to befall such a good person as Job? I want us to understand something about the Hebrew mindset. The Hebrew people stressed the importance of knowing God because it would lead to an awe of God. We've already sung a couple of songs this morning about standing amazed in the presence of Jesus. That's a very, that's a, that would really resonate with these Hebrew people. We want to know God because we are going to stand amazed at what we learn about him. Now, this is in sharp contrast to our modern way of knowing, which is most commonly a quest for knowledge so we can use that knowledge. But with the Hebrew people, knowledge of God led to an awe of God. And with that sense of awe, there is both a compelling curiosity that draws us closer, but there's also a fear that leads us to take very careful steps and to think before we take those steps towards a holy God. God is holy, and he is also holy other. So in this book of Job, by the time you get to chapters 38 and 39, God enters into this dialogue with Job that is just, uh, it, it, it magnifies how holy other God is, how magnificent and, and glorious and how capable he is beyond anything that we could imagine for ourselves. And he poses a series of questions towards Job. And he's basically saying, this is who I am. Can you do this? And it's not to put Job down. It is to, uh, to, um, to raise up with him a sense of awe in the midst of all of these troubles that Job is going through. So here's some things. I'm going to read some scriptures here. And this could make for some really interesting reading for you in Job 38 and 39 throughout the week just to help you understand how big God really is. In chapter 39, God says to Job, do you give the horse its strength or clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? And all of these rhetorical questions are God's way of saying, these are things I do every day. In chapter 38, um, he, it's, it's uh, on a big, a global and even bigger scale. Um, God declares his power and his dominion. Again, with a series of rhetorical questions. 
Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. God's, have you ever heard the phrase, it's not bragging if you can do it? This is kind of what I think of with this. God's not bragging. He is, he is stating truth. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. And then he begins to talk about uh, the stars and the heavens. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? And there's so much more than this. That's, that's what I'll read for now. But God is just laying all of this on Job. And how does Job reply in chapter 40, verse 5? Job says, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer twice. But I will say no more. Let me state this again. The Hebrew people stressed the importance of knowing God, not so they could use that knowledge to their advantage, but because it would lead to an awe of God. And here's my point. With that sense of awe, there's both a compelling curiosity that draws us closer to God, which God wants. He wants us to draw closer. But there is also a fear that leads us to take very careful steps towards that holy God, a God who is holy and also holy other. When, when my son was real little, we moved into this new house and our backyard backed up to this little fenced other backyard where they had a small dog that um, its bark was definitely louder and worse than its bite. But every time we entered into the backyard, this little dog would come ripping towards that fence towards us, barking and threatening. And Jack, as a young kid, I don't, he was less than two years old, was drawn towards this barking dog. I mean, this is this acute dog, but it was really loud and, and tried to be as scary as it could. And it was an interesting exchange as a dad. I would watch Jack as he was drawn towards the dog, but he also recognized that the dog posed a certain threat. And there was a time when I watched very carefully um, as Jack extended a very vulnerable hand through the chain link fence toward that dog. And Walter Brueggemann, this book that I've, I've read recently, he uses the phrase fascinating and threatening to describe the holiness of God. Fascinating and threatening. God cannot be domesticated. And it was kind of like Jack squeezing his little hand through that fence in order to touch the dog. We reach out to God 
fascinated and knowing that he is all powerful. In the words of C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, um, I believe it was Lucy that um, is asking questions about Aslan that represents God in this, in this story. And the description given of Aslan, the lion, um, who is the Christ figure, safe is, he is not safe, but he is good. It's this combination of fascinating and threatening. While we are in the midst of this pandemic, the church is essential in helping the world to see that one thing we long for, I believe even more than a vaccine or a return to normal, is our longing for a God who is bigger and beyond us. Life is more than cause and effect transactional reasoning. Could it be that God simply wants us to be still in his awe-inspiring holiness? That God wants us to remain silent before the God whose knowledge is beyond our capabilities. Brueggemann puts it this way. He says, we are gifted with imagination that will not settle for explanation. Let me say that again. I love this quote. I'm putting it in the chat feature. We are gifted with imagination that will not settle for explanation. The psalmist, David, when reflecting on the miracle of, of birth, penned this in Psalm 139. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty for me to attain. And that's not just because he hadn't gone to medical school. He recognized that God was capable of things that were just mysteriously beyond him. When my children were born, in that process, I was asking nurses and doctors several questions throughout that process. Curiosity compelled me to ask what was taking place and why they were doing what they were doing. But when it came to this, when it came to walking out into the waiting area where my family and close friends were anxiously waiting the news, all I could do was weep. The whole experience was too wonderful for me. But that was okay, because in that moment, no one wanted to settle for a mere explanation. There are things that are just so wonderful for us that really the best response is to fall on our faces before a God who is holy and holy other. And I want to close with this brief word of hope. Let's expect God to birth something new. Let's expect God to birth something new in our midst. We live in a world that gives us a lot of options. Let me, let's think of it this way. We live in a world that gives us a lot of options when it comes to numbing, denying, or otherwise avoiding pain. If you've ever said amen in a church service, this is probably something that, like me you could amen to. We, we love to numb, deny, or avoid pain. I mean, none of us are excited about it. But there are times when pain is a signal that something new is about to be birthed. It's true in the birthing process. The, the Bible tells us that the earth itself groans in childbirth. 
And even the pains of old age are signs that birth into a new and everlasting life is closer than it was the day before. The coronavirus is painful on many levels, and if not painful, at least causing great discomfort. For example, the systems our country has that allow for the continuation and flourishing of things such as racism and poverty have been brought to the forefront, have been brought to our attention by the cries of those who are in pain. If we are faithful to attend to that pain, rather than numb it or deny it, then our pains can give birth to something new. What is our pain saying to us? What is your pain saying to you? What new thing could God birth in you and in the world as we attend to that pain? As we attend to the pain rather than numb the pain with consumerism. As we attend to the pain rather than deny the pain with busyness and personal agendas. It was the cry of our Savior in great pain on a Friday that gave birth to a new resurrected life on a Sunday. Pain precedes birth. Let's expect God to birth something new. Would you grab your communion elements with me? Bread and cup. And let's celebrate that God has entered into a new covenant with us that's not limited to transactions, that's not limited to um, our righteousness, but actually the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed into us. Um, let's celebrate a covenant that's based upon the steadfastness of his love. Uh, let's celebrate that Jesus gave his life for us. I read this verse last week, and I want to read it again in 2 Chronicles verse twenty, uh, chapter 20. It says, we have no power to face this vast enemy that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Communion is a time for us to set our eyes on Christ through these very simple symbols. Let's turn our eyes to the Lord as we remember the new covenant, not a cause and effect, but rather the covenant of grace. It's all grace. It's all grace. As he gathered with his very fickle followers whom we can relate to, he described something that was beyond their understanding at the time, but he said, this bread represents my body that I'm going to offer for you. When you eat this bread, remember me. And taking the cup, he began to describe to them the new covenant of his blood. And he said, when you take this cup, when you drink of this cup, remember me. Let me say a prayer thanking God for his grace. And then join me 
and the Holmes family as we sing about God's grace. Father, we thank you for the new covenant that Jesus has established with us. And Lord, we come to you with both fascination and a holy reverence, a, a respectful fear. Father, whatever the chain link fence is between you and us, whatever it is that we have erected um, that separates us from you, Lord, give us a compelling courage to reach through that fence towards you. We extend ourselves vulnerably in your direction, and we do so with the confidence of this new covenant that you will respond with love and grace. And that knowledge is too wonderful for me. I can never begin to understand the amount of love and grace. But I say thank you. As you stand at the door to each of our lives and you are knocking right now, we open that door and we welcome you and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.